I'm a little old-fashioned. When I go to the grocery store, I still write out my list on a sheet of paper. And the reason I do that is there was one point a couple years, three years ago, where I ran into one of you, and um, you, you saw me with the paper list, and you said, well, I keep it on my phone. And I thought, well, I probably should do that. I have a phone. It has notes. I could put it on there. And um, then I ran into another one of you at the grocery store who also had your list on the phone. And I remember visiting with you, and then you told me that you wished that you had put the list on the paper like I had because your phone had just gone dead. <laughs> I think it points to memory. <laughs> We all need to remember, right? And how are we going to do it? We all need to hold on to particular memories. It was at the crack of dawn. Now, we were here at 8 o'clock, and it was pretty sunny already. It wasn't the crack of dawn at 8 o'clock. The crack of dawn would have been like maybe 5, 5.30 this morning. It was the crack of dawn when the women arrived at the tomb. They had prepared spices to anoint Jesus' body so that he could have a proper burial. I mean, it had been a rushed venture on Friday. I mean, he was crucified at noon. By 3 o'clock, he had been declared dead. And so, it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, according to John's Gospel, that tells us that they took down Jesus' body. They're the ones that took responsibility for the body. And they wrapped it. They had about 75 pounds of spiced ointments that they used in preparing his body. They wrapped the body in a linen cloth, and they laid it in a brand-new tomb, never used before. You see, in Israel, you reuse things. I know that's a novel idea for us in the United States, but, uh, you know, when you have a history, a long history... Um, you know, you, you can't take up space. So what they would do is they would place the body in a place where it would deteriorate for a year until there was just bones, and then they'd collect the bones and they'd put the bones in an ossuary, a little, little box, so you don't take up so much space. And so Jesus had been laid in this brand-new tomb. No one had ever laid there before. No dead one. So when the women arrived at the tomb, the stone had been rolled away. And when they saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, they became confused because it was an act of God. It was an act of God. The stone rolled away from the tomb was an act of God. What is an act of God? <laughs> Have you ever thought about that before? I thought about it. I'm weird, I suppose, but I remember reading through one of my insurance forms. Yeah. <laughs> Strange, right? Um, I'm into details sometimes. I, I can't explain it. But I, I remember reading through this insurance form, and it said that my car would be insured 
if it suffered damage from an act of God. And so I remember asking my insurance agent, what's an act of God? Here's the legal definition. An act of God is an accident or an event resulting from natural causes without human intervention and one that could not have been prevented by reasonable foresight or care. So if your car gets damaged by hail, the insurance company has to pay you because it was an act of God. My previous church the men's softball team, they actually won the big church tournament at the end of the year. Throughout the whole city of Des Moines, all these church softball teams were playing in this big tournament. And, and, and our church won it. And we knew that the only way that they could have won that is through an act of God. <laughs> so we presented them Sunday morning with the Divine Intervention Award. This is an act of God. The tomb is empty. The body hasn't been moved away. It's not being stored somewhere else. The body is gone. It is not there. It was an act of God that opened the tomb so that the women could go in and see that there was no body. It was an act of God that shifted them away from the darkness of death to see the light of hope to see the light of faith, to be able to trust in what the words of God had told them. Yet the women were terrified. They were terrified and confused. I think part of their terror came from seeing two angelic messengers, two angelic men, two angels, in dazzling white robes, who had come to reassure the women, but like many men, misinterpreted their presence and instead terrified them. The women were so terrified, they fell to their knees and bowed down to the ground with their faces. Now, if the empty tomb had not been confusing enough, now they are stricken with fear from these two angels who are dressed in white. The, the other time we see this word used to describe this gleaming types of whiteness is during the transfiguration. Remember when Jesus and his three disciples go up to the mountain and he is transfigured and Moses and Elijah are with him and, and it describes Jesus' clothing in the same, with the same word, that gleaming light white, kind of like lightning that comes from heaven. So if the empty tomb was confusing and if they had been stricken with fear, the angels finally get to the point. They ask the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen from the dead. The living do not inhabit tombs. So why are we, like the women, fixated on death? You know, I was introduced to something that many of you already knew about before COVID, and that's called uh, Netflix and streaming. 
And uh, one of the things that I noticed on these streaming platforms is how many dead people are in shows. <laughs> I mean, not like they're dead people dead, but they act as dead people. You know, they kind of walk around like, oh, here I come after you, I'm dead. I mean, show after show, I mean, series after series, The Walking Dead, I mean, why are we so fixated with death? I mean, how many times have you gone to Netflix and found a story of resurrection and hope and new life? You see, we, we love death. We love it because it plays to our fears, to our terrors, to our doubts. But let me proclaim this to you plainly. Jesus was not dead on that Easter morning. And Jesus is not dead today. He is alive. And he has come to promise you the same life that he has. A resurrected life. A life that lives beyond the grave. Then the angels proclaim the good news to the women by reminding them of what Jesus had said. Now that's a novel idea, isn't it? And they, they do this with one word. And it's, you know, sometimes they like to soften things, you know, in the church. We don't want to be too confrontational. And, and so it says, remember, oh, remember that first time we set eyes on each other. And that's not the kind of remember that it says. This one's, hey, remember. <laughs> remember. Don't you remember what he told you? What did Jesus tell you? Anybody remember? You see, the angels are telling the, the women that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day from that one word, remember. You see, before Jesus' death, he had told his disciples and the women and his followers, he had told them this to them at least four times that we have in Luke's gospel. The first time was, remember when Peter, in a, in a proclamation of faith, tells Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. That's in chapter 9. And then, later in chapter 9, Jesus teaches this to his disciples again. These are all little sections on discipleship. And this section comes right after the disciples have botched a healing. And we know that they botched the healing because the person's son who wasn't healed comes to Jesus to say, you know, what's with you guys? And so, two times in chapter 9, verse 22 and verse 44, we hear the story of Jesus' mission, his purpose in life, that he has come to suffer, to die on the cross, to be crucified, and on the third day to be raised again from the dead. Then in chapter 17, we hear a shortened version of it when he is talking about the end of times, the Son of Man returning, and he talks about how his death will come. And then again we hear about it 
in chapter 18. This is right after the rich man who has come to Jesus, has been invited by Jesus to be a disciple of his. It's right after this rich man has heard the invitation and rejected it and turned away. And then Jesus teaches his disciples again. His close followers, he teaches again about his purpose. He is the Messiah who has come to suffer, to be crucified, and on the third day to be raised again from the dead. Remember. Remember? Well, maybe they remembered. Perhaps they remembered. Maybe they just didn't understand it. Whatever the case, now the angels have heard the good news. I mean, the women have heard the good news from the angels. You will not find the living among the dead. You won't find Jesus in a cemetery. He is risen. He is not dead. He is alive. Christ is risen. Well, that was a little half-hearted. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Much better, much better. Now I know you're not sleeping. I was a little worried there. I'd, I'd put you to sleep. Yeah, not anymore. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> we woke you up, didn't we? <laughs> now the angels help the women to hear the good news. He is risen. So the women go from confusion to terror or fear to remembering, to believing, to trusting, to faith. That is quite a progression. That is an amazing progression. The proclamation of remembering God's words from the angels makes faith not just possible for these women, but a reality for these women. So how will we remember? How will we have faith? I think this Easter story points us to the fact that faith comes from the hearing of the word of God, in particular, the words of Jesus' life, suffering, death, and resurrection. Paul writes about it in Romans 10, verse 17, in this way. So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ Jesus. And this, friends, is good news. I, I am so thankful that you are here this morning. I am so grateful, for I want you to hear this good news. Because this good news has been given for you. Yes, for you. Jesus is risen from the dead. And now he offers that gift of life for all who hear it, all who believe it. So often we get mired down in, in death and confusion, and fear, and mistrust, and fights, and an apathy. And, but there's one who has come to give you life. Not just you, but your family, and your friends. Most people that we know need Jesus. I need Jesus. Most people in our lives that we know need Jesus. Your family your friends. Sometimes we drift a little bit. Sometimes we're far away 
from Jesus. Sometimes we're closer. But we all need Jesus. And how will your friends and your family hear the good news so that they can believe and trust? How can they, how can they hear the word that can move them from doubt to faith? I just recently read about um, some studies that were done about hearing God's word. What it said was 30% of Christians have heard God's word this past year. And the definition of hearing God's word means that they either have read their own Bible and heard it through their reading, or they have gone to a church where someone has read the scripture and they have heard it read that way. So 30% have heard it within the last year. So that means, I'm not talking people here, I'm talking Christians. So that means 70% of Christians haven't heard the word of God in the last year. That's alarming to a pastor. However, there is some hope. Those who went to a church, 82% heard the word of God. 82% of those who attended a church now, you're probably thinking, like, like I think, kind of weird sometimes. Like, well, what about the other 18%? <laughs> and so I, I have a couple of theories. I don't know if they're, like my son-in-law and daughter um, in their church in Chicago, um, you know, like once a month or so, they'll, they'll serve in the nursery. I don't know if you've ever watched little two-year-olds and one-year-olds, but um, you're not going to hear the word of God while you're doing that. You're, you're living out the word of God, but you're not going to hear it. Um, or it could be like my internship church. The ushers there, they got everybody in, seated, and um, then right before the scripture readings and the sermon, uh, these guys, there are about four or five of them, they would all go out onto the patio, out into the parking lot, and uh, they'd take their coffee and you know, have a smoke and um, sit out there until after the sermon was done. Then they'd come back in and collect the offering. So those, those are people who went to church that didn't hear the word of God. I don't know where the 18% went, but anyhow, 82% still pretty, pretty, pretty spectacular if you ask me. 82% of Christians hearing the promises of God would be awesome. So the point here is that if we want more people to trust in God's word, we should invite them to worship with us. We should encourage them to participate in a church service somewhere. It doesn't have to be this church. It can be any church. Any church where they're preaching the word of God. <laughs> that is what the women did. Guys, we've got to take, take a good lesson from the women here. That's what they did. They went back to their friends, to their spiritual family, and they shared the good news. They rush back to tell the disciples and everyone else, it says. However, did you hear what Alex read? The disciples dismissed it. They turned it off. So if you invite a family member or a friend and they don't come to church, don't, don't get depressed, don't get down. Just keep inviting. Just keep asking them. It's up to the Holy Spirit. And 
remember that not all of the disciples dismissed it. There was one who didn't. Peter jumped up and he ran to the tomb. And as he ran to the tomb, he he saw that it was empty. So he returned home again. And it says he returned home wondering what had happened. What had happened? By the time Peter encounters the resurrected Christ later in this resurrection story, he will have faith. And you see, that's, that's what's amazing about Peter. Because some people kind of rag on Peter because he made mistakes, he had faults, he had flaws. But Jesus saw something in Peter early on. And it wasn't his strength of character. It was the character of his faith. That's what Jesus saw in Peter. That deep down beneath everything else was a profound faith in Jesus as the Messiah. It was his faith. And all because the women were audacious enough, were able to risk their position and to tell the disciples and everyone else what they had seen and what they had heard. They too haven't seen the risen Christ yet. But they've heard his word. And they know it's true. And they are just waiting for the day that they will see him face to face. So if you're moved to faith by remembering Jesus' words about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, Are you excited about waiting to see Jesus face to face again? I know I am. And if we're excited about that, who do you want to tell? Shall we pray? Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, that he came into our life and into our lives now. And we just thank you, God, that he gave his life for us and that you raised him from the dead so that you could show to us that you are the God of all possibility, that you are the God of promise, that you are the God of faith and hope. Turn us away from our attractions to death and bring us to life. And not just life today, but life everlasting. On that day when you call us home. We thank you, Lord, for this Easter. And for this reminder that those who have departed before us, we will all still be together again one day. And we look forward to that celebration that will be in your house. In Jesus' name, amen.